Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. We really do try to craft the stories that we tell you as well as we can. And that means that we're always searching for a great conclusion, right? The perfect ending to each of the stories that we bring you. The stories themselves, though, rarely cooperate. The, the thing about telling people real stories is that they keep going. Even after we tell them, uh, the events keep unfolding. And so every once in a while, we have decided – to revisit the stories that we've brought you in the past and give you an update on what has happened since we first told you about it. And today is one of those days. We're going to return first to two towns in Ontario that are facing the possibility of becoming the host site for all of Canada's high-grade nuclear waste. Then we're going to catch up with Ari Ben-Menashi, who we first told you about last year in 2021, a guy who we described as a James Bond villain. He is a notorious lobbyist for hire by some of the world's sketchiest governments. Finally, we're going to correct something we got wrong on a story and actually turn that correction into an entire segment because 
the correction is actually pretty interesting, and that's how you make content. This is an update to a story that we first told you about efforts to unionize retail labor and gig work. All of that's coming. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Patty Carson, El De Arisso, Fletcher Nickel, Josh Litwinick, Katie Moore, Kevin McPherson, Michael Martin, and Devin. I'm Devin. I'm a high school teacher in a rural community in BC, and I support Canada Land because it does what I aspire to do as a teacher. It presents facts, arguments, and viewpoints that are important, various, and rigorously contested. I like that I always come away from the family of Canada Land podcasts feeling informed and curious rather than simply reassured in my pre-existing opinions. Two decades ago, a not-for-profit organization called the Nuclear Waste Management Organization, the NWMO, was created. It's funded by the nuclear power industry in this country. The NWMO's sole mission was to engage with communities and find a place for Canada to store all of its spent nuclear reactor cores that had been used for power generation across the country. The idea being to create a tomb for this nuclear waste where it could stay for thousands and thousands of years. Something called a Deep Geological Repository, or a DGR. In 2010, 22 communities raised their hands and said, Here, us, we would like to be considered for this $26 billion project. But by January, when we told you this story, that search for the right community uh, failed premise for the worst reality TV show ever, uh, that search should be narrowed down from 22 communities to two, and both of them are in Ontario. One of the contenders is about 150 kilometers northwest of Toronto, the community of South Bruce, and the other one is way up in northwestern Ontario, Ignace. And it just so happens that our senior producer, Sarah Larniuk, is originally from that area. She met with people in Ignace and her hometown of Dryden who are mounting opposition to the project, including Sylvia Green Gwinnett. We'll come back to that. Sylvia says absolutely nothing the NWMO says or does will sway her. She is against Northern Ontario becoming a dumping ground for nuclear waste in principle. It has nothing to do with any specific technical concern she has, but more about preserving undeveloped slices of nature. So... She got involved with a small group of people opposed to the project. They've started hosting online meetings. They've started tabling at community events. Sylvia unfurls the banner they taped to the front of their information booth with those iconic nuclear hazard symbols. You can find similar loud yellow banners popping up across the region right now. In people's windows, yards, at the end of their driveways too, declaring that nuclear waste is not welcome in northwestern Ontario. I am definitely afraid. I do sleep at night because I say I've done the best I can today. Tomorrow's another day. We're going to stop this. I will not even allow myself to think that it cannot be stopped, this project. I, I won't. Like I said, the fear people have about this project is intense. Well, thank you. Have a good one. Thank you. The story that we brought you talked about the visceral fear that was gripping people opposed to the project, which, you know, makes a lot of sense. This kind of nuclear waste is arguably the most dangerous material 
on Earth, and it requires cooling and monitoring indefinitely. But the problem is that nuclear waste is currently only stored in temporary locations, containers that have a lifespan of about 100 years, max. So we have been slapping temporary band-aid solutions onto this problem with no long-term solution ever having been attempted until now. Now, when countries around the world are racing to get these DGRs up and running. Alison McFarlane is the head of the School of Public Policy and Global Affairs at the University of British Columbia, and she was the former chair of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. In January, she told CanadaLand she believes the effort to find a permanent solution to the nuclear waste problem by developing a DGR is the safest solution. But she also said this about the fear community members are feeling. I would never say that it needn't be feared. I think that's a reasonable response. (laughs) Um, I don't know that the point should be trying to convince people that they're wrong, that they shouldn't be fearful. I would never argue for that. And, And people in the nuclear industry who make the claim that, oh, if we could only educate the public, they would understand that they don't have to worry. Well, one should be concerned about a material that can kill you when you can't sense it at all, right? You can't smell it. You, you know, radiation can be there and you have no idea. The way to think about all of this stuff is in a relative sense. You can't think in an absolute sense. So what are you comparing this to? What are you comparing a deep geologic repository to? You're comparing it to leaving the material where it is right now, above ground. Which is riskier? In my view, it's much riskier to leave it where it is. We don't know that the institutions that ensure that we're safe from it will continue. We do know that if they don't continue, the containers that this material is in will break down and it will get into the environment. And that will happen a hell of a lot faster than would ever happen deep underground. There was no real ending to this story. And so Sarah is back now with an update on what has happened since. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Jesse. Where do we leave this? How is this decision going to be made about where this waste tomb is going to exist? So where we left it in January was that these two regions that were facing this decision about whether or not they want this project in their communities, they chose completely different paths. So in northwestern Ontario, Ignace and the neighboring First Nation, Wabagoon Lake Ojibwe Nation, they're the two communities that have veto power over the project's potential site being located there. And there in northwestern Ontario, they've decided that town and band councils respectively will have the call on whether or not this project goes ahead in their community. Meanwhile, in South Bruce, council passed a resolution saying that they will, in some future time, have a referendum on this question and leave it up to residents. But the problem there being that the next council has no mandate to actually do that referendum. And so the election of the next council will be really critical to that project and how it plays out there as to whether or not they even hold that referendum. Okay, so that's where we left it. Basically, it sounds like everybody is just like passing the buck to somebody else or kicking the can down the road. What's happened since? Well, the most critical thing that's happening is that 
all Ontario municipalities are facing elections come October. And so this has become the issue. And so last week, one of the advocates against the DGR that I spoke to for the story in January, Michelle Stein, she sent out an email blast announcing that she was stepping down as chair of the Protect Our Waterways Advocacy Group in South Bruce. And she's instead now running for council. And she's not only running for council, she's running for council with a slate of other people for every council seat and the mayor's seat that are committed to conducting that referendum that was promised. So you've got an environmentalist activist, uh, instead of pressuring government from their advocacy group, actually just running for public office. Absolutely. Yeah, they are taking this into their own hands, not relying on the next council listening to them. They just want to form the next council. And so this is what she said when I called her up. We have people running in all positions and we're running as individuals. So everybody has their own set of ideas and which is, which I think is exciting. It's time for some new ideas to come into, into the municipal process here. But we are all agreeing on the fact that there needs to be a referendum sooner rather than later. The past 10 years, our municipality has been so focused on this one project and so many municipal resources and time has been sent that way. It leaves you wondering what opportunities have we missed? Another thing that we're focused on is there needs to be open and transparent meetings. At this time, our council doesn't record their meetings. So if you can't physically go in to watch it, or you're not able to have a good internet connection. And there's lots of people in our community who do not have you know, a stable internet connection. So the council meeting happens to be on and you're working in the field or that's the night your internet doesn't work and all you get is the little circle. You don't get to see what's being discussed in council. And one of the things we're committing to is with a push of a button in the Zoom meetings, you can record that. Sarah, what about uh, your neck of the woods? What's going on in northwestern Ontario? So I reached out to the mayor of Ignace, who is in favor of the DGR being hosted in, in that community. And she never actually got back to me. But last weekend, I went to a wedding in northwestern Ontario, and I passed through Eagle Lake First Nation, which is a community about 130 kilometers from the proposed site, and not one of the communities that actually has a say in whether or not this project goes ahead. In driveway after driveway in this community are these little yellow signs that say no nuclear waste in northwestern Ontario. I have to say, in my life at least, I have never seen political mobilization in northwestern Ontario. The, the only thing I've ever seen people in northwestern Ontario get really fired up about was like buck a beer. So this is new. This is something that like the opposition is is very well organized. And so I don't know how many people it actually represents, but I've never seen this level of political mobilization for anything. But this mobilization is from communities that are further away from the proposed site and they don't actually get a say as to whether or not this project is approved, correct? Correct. But there is also an impact. So even though these communities don't have a direct say, it is impacting the project. So in addition to you know, people putting driveway signs up. Earlier this month, Nishinaabe Aski Nation, which is a collective of 49 First Nations from across Northern Ontario, they came out against the DGR being developed in the region. They passed a resolution and Grand Chief Derek Fox said in an interview with the Globe and Mail, quote, 
We're fighting for our young people. We're talking hundreds of years from now. That's who we're speaking up for. Anishinaabe Aski Nation is going to do all it can, and I was mandated by the chiefs to do all that we can to stop this from happening. So they're not exactly being ambivalent about it. Mm -hmm. And as a consequence, okay, I can't say directly as a consequence because the NWMO says it's, it's unrelated, but they have pushed the decision date down the road further to 2024. And so they're further delaying this, and it does seem to be a direct consequence of the opposition that's rising up against this project. And the NWMO spokesperson, Vince Ponca, said this when I asked him about it. When we last spoke, we were confident that we'd make a decision by the end of 2023, but now it's going to be the middle to end of 2024. And really, it was just basically due to COVID. Uh, We just weren't able to get out into the communities like we wanted to. You know, I know for myself, the number of events in the north that we had to just cancel due to COVID, or even when we were able to go out in the field with our mobile Learn More Center, we could only bring one person through at a time, you know, so it was just, it was very, very limited. We couldn't have the events we wanted. So we just decided to add that extra year just to give communities and the public more time to learn about this project. So that's the big news. But in terms of when we'll hear from the communities about willingness, you really have to talk to them about whether they'll change their timeline on that. Okay, but Sarah, if, if opposition is mounting, like is, is just pushing back the decision date going to make a difference? So Vince told me that the chair of Indigenous Relations thinks that it will, that they'll have more time to put a face on this and have in-person meetings and make a difference. But Michelle Stein in Southern Ontario has a much more skeptical view about the extension. This continuing to push the uh, decision date forward really just holds the community hostage. I mean, as a farmer, I can't make decisions about five years from now because I don't know what the decision is going to be and how many more times are they going to delay. Um, When this project started, we found minutes from NWMO uh, board meetings and they were hoping to have the decision by 2022. Then it was by 2023 and now it's Then it was in 2023, and now it's been bumped to 2024. So how many times are they going to just keep pushing it forward? In my opinion, the only thing they don't have yet is willingness. So are they going to just keep moving that date back until they think they can get the answer they want? There certainly is a discrepancy in the resources here, right? The opposition groups are definitely, if nothing else, grassroots. How many people that opposition actually represents is not super clear, But they definitely don't have the resources the NWMO has because they are supported by the entire nuclear industry. So as the timeline is extended, a skeptical person might think that the opposition will eventually burn itself out. The problem is that I still don't really have an ending for the story for you, Jesse, because this is something that will be ongoing for the next few years still. But uh, it's definitely fascinating to watch. I got to tell you, sir, this is one where I will confess that selfishly, I'm not necessarily feeling like hooray for the Rebel Alliance for uh, (laughs) blocking the entombment of this nuclear waste because the nuclear waste is still there above ground in a temporary fixed solution. So Mm -hmm. I feel for these communities and yet the idea of this being in as safe a location as possible for as long as possible. It seems like desirable, right? (laughs) as far away from me as possible, uh, definitely suits my interests. Right. 
I mean, one update that has nothing to do with this project, but has definitely made me think about this project a lot and what Alison McFarlane said was that we can't count on governments to stand. We can't count on institutions to stand for thousands of years, like as long as this waste poses a threat. And the war in Ukraine has certainly showed us how easily nuclear power, nuclear waste, you know, it falls into the wrong hands, a government falls, all of a sudden, you know, that chain of custody, that safety that we count on so much, like it, it can fall apart. Human institutions are temporary. Well, that's terrifying. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> You're welcome. Thanks, Jesse. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. In March of last year, we introduced you to an elderly Montreal lobbyist named Ari Ben-Menashe. And Ari Ben-Menashe, it's almost difficult to know where to begin. If you believe everything he has said about who he is and what he has done in his life, you would think of him as sort of a weirdly accessible, super talkative version of the X-Files cigarette smoking man, a former intelligence agent whose career is the thread tying together people, places, and events as disparate as Robert Mugabe, the Iran-Contra scandal, Jeffrey Epstein, Israel, Iran, Libya, and Sudan. A less charitable description, I suppose uh, you might call him the Forrest Gump of statecraft. More commonly, Ari Ben-Menashe is called the warlord's favorite lobbyist. But if even a fraction of what he claims to have gotten up to is true, and there's strong evidence that at least that much is true, then he's still almost certainly the most interesting person 
who you can just look up in a phone book and place a call to. So we did. When I spoke to him last year, Ben Menashe's lobbying business had just taken on a new client, the generals who had recently seized control of Myanmar, deposing Aung San Suu Kyi as leader and instituting a brutal and bloody crackdown in that country. A few days earlier, he had registered with the U.S. Department of Justice as an official foreign agent of Myanmar's new junta, tasked with lobbying the governments of the U.S., Russia, Saudi Arabia, Israel, and the United Arab Emirates on behalf of that junta. One of his duties was to, quote, assist in explaining the real situation in the country. A lot of material has come out publicly about our work in Myanmar, as you may have seen. Lots of articles from all over. A lot of them criticize us like you tried to. But some of them, the narrative is already changing because the truth is sort of coming to light about what the real situation is. And I think if we talk again in two years' time, we probably have a democracy in Myanmar. Well, it's been about a year and a half, and Myanmar is still a military dictatorship. Ben Menashe said in his registration that he would be paid $2 million for his work when legally permissible. A wrinkle in the arrangement was that his clients were facing sanctions from both the U.S. and Canada, meaning that he could not legally do business with them. So his plan was to defer payment until he could get the U.S. and Canada to lift the sanctions or at least grant him special exemptions from them. But in the meantime... He was still giving it his all. There was no military coup in Myanmar. Please, uh, please don't try to demonize the generals. We called that episode Interview with a Real Life Bond Villain. He had an interesting response when I told him that that's the kind of character that I felt like I was speaking to. Well, we tend to think of ourselves as uh, good guys. Our news editor, Jonathan Goldsby, joins me now to tell us about what has happened with this guy since. Hi, Jesse. Jonathan, hello. My first question, did Ari Ben Menashe ever get paid his $2 million? Well, my first question that I've been wondering for a while is which Bond villain were you thinking of? Like maybe the guy in the living daylights? It's been a while since they've had people like that as villains. But uh, to answer your question, uh, no. He never got paid. No. In one of the regular updates he had to file with the U.S. government um, in July 2021, he said that the contract with Myanmar had been canceled, quote, before the conditions for its effectiveness were satisfied. What does that mean? Well, a week later, he filed another statement with the government to clarify that, uh, basically saying the contract had been terminated in May after just a couple of months. Terminated. Well, he told the Globe and Mail that it was really just on pause until he could get those exemptions from the U.S. and Canadian governments. But his lawyer told a foreign lobby report that they hadn't actually applied for the U.S. waiver anyway because it was already pretty clear from early conversations with officials in both countries that they weren't going to be getting it. But the lawyer also mentioned that there had been a Department of Justice inquiry into the terms of the agreement. And was there? Uh, well, I'm not entirely sure. Well, it was more of the question is, like, what does the inquiry mean? Like, it doesn't it wasn't like an inquiry. It's just like, it sounds like they're just sort of asking around. That's the sense I get because uh, in that follow-up filing, there was another amendment, which is said basically that notwithstanding the abrupt end of his contract, he had carried out some work for Myanmar, specifically public relations and humanitarian work. 
public relations and humanitarian work? Yeah, the humanitarian part is is rather ironic, to say the least. But it was the public relations part I found fascinating because he did not like it when you described his work that way. No, no, we're in, I'm not PR agents. Don't, we're trying to put the facts out publicly. If uh, journalists that want to travel to Myanmar were even making it easier for them to travel to Myanmar, they can see for themselves. So as we described accurately, it turns out he is an international PR agent. His job has been to spin their military dictatorship into a story of a budding democracy in the eyes of Westerners. Uh, yeah, that, that was his job for uh, at least a couple months. And during that time, he did end up facilitating a trip for at least one high-profile journalist, CNN's chief international correspondent, Clarissa Ward. It didn't really go well for anyone. We have a CNN exclusive this morning. Remarkable access inside Myanmar, which is in the midst of a bloody military coup. At least 11 people were arrested Friday, minutes after being interviewed by CNN. Our Clarissa Ward joins us now live from Myanmar with the permission of the military, who we do want to note is escorting our team. So this was a very distressing incident, John. On one day, we were finally allowed to go to a public space, to an open market. And it's important to underscore here that we have not solicited contact with any activists, with anyone who's part of the protest movement, because we know, given the context that we're here in, just how dangerous that could be. However, when we took our cameras out in this market and started shooting video, people started coming up to us. And they came up and started telling us their stories. They told us they were frightened. They told us there is no peace there. Shortly afterwards, however, we found out that many of them were detained. One woman actually ran after me while we were still at the market, trembling like a leaf on the phone with someone who said that three people we'd spoken to had already been arrested. So Ben Menashe did succeed in bringing CNN into the country only for the generals who he served to then arrest the people who spoke to CNN? Yeah, at least 11 people were detained, of whom at least eight were released after a few days. And there's, if, you, if anyone wants to find the video, there's interesting, Close Award does grill one of the generals on it. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. And this was a trip that was arranged by Ari Ben-Menashe. Yeah, both he and CNN have said so. This probably wasn't the takeaway that he would have liked or he or the generals would have liked CNN to have. That coup has given rise to an enormous protest movement that has swelled across the country. Put simply, the military does not have the support of the people of Myanmar. At the same time, Clarissa Ward and CNN got a lot of shit for their coverage in the Western media, with pieces in places like the Columbia Journalism Review, Vice, and the Toronto Star criticizing it as parachute journalism of high risk and dubious value. I mean, despite how CNN framed their coverage, the fact is that there are lots of journalists in Myanmar carefully doing that dangerous work every day, both foreigners who didn't leave following the coup, as well as many locals who regularly file for international news agencies. Um, speaking of which, Mother Jones reported that when a local reporter for the Associated Press got arrested by the regime around the same time, the AP's vice president for international news got in touch with Ben Menashe. Then three weeks later, the journalist was released and Ben Menashe was happy to take credit for it. That was the sort of humanitarian work his filing alluded to. Okay. 
Thank you for the update, Jonathan. Oh, oh, we're just getting started. We're just getting started. Oh. So, yeah, this guy keeps busy. Uh, Last fall, there was a coup in Sudan, the second in as many years, and Ben Menashe got a contract with that military regime, too, or actually seems to have extended an earlier contract he'd had from the previous coup when he got $6 million for stuff like helping to facilitate a meeting between the head of the transitional government in Sudan and the prime minister of Israel. Uh His most recent U.S. filing said that he's continuing to apply those same retainer payments, so he didn't get paid again, presumably. The six million is still still drawing on that uh, as he carries on with things like helping the Sovereign Council Sudan pick a new civilian prime minister. And that arrangement was particularly notable because it actually prompted street protests last November. There were many pro-democracy protests organized by the Sudanese-Canadian community following the coup last fall, but there was one that focused specifically on the Canadian lobbying rules that allow Ben Menashe to do what he does. Uh, The event was promoted as Stop Polishing Military Coups, with the explanation on the digital flyers that lobbying on behalf of a military junta is a shame. Let us amend the law and stop it. There was a street protest against the specific lobbying rules that allow him to do his work? Yeah, or the absence of rules that would prohibit it. This was billed as a march from Parliament Hill to the office of the lobbying commissioner. And there were placards like, we need to ensure that lobbying does not allow promoting military regimes and dictatorships. And actually, the week before that, there was a rally in Montreal that turned into a march and which made a point of stopping outside Ben Menashe's office. Or, or the official address of his business, I should say, since I'm not sure he actually works out of that building on Phillips Square. And then this past July, he signed a half-million-dollar contract with the regime that staged a coup in Burkina Faso at the start of this year. You know, I have relatives who are, like, facing this challenge of staying busy in their golden years. They could learn something from Ari Benanashi. His stamina is extraordinary. It's just one after another with him. Yeah, actually, usually several at the same time. I mean, he's a real hunter-gatherer, as it were. <laughs> okay. Again, thank you for the update, oh, John. Oh, no, there's, there's more. There's more. So he also <laughs> showed up in Vicky Ward's Discovery Plus series and Audible original podcast, Chasing Ghislaine, uh, that came out last year about Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein. Oh, of course he did. Uh, he, he he really keeps some lovely company. What was his connection to Jeffrey Epstein? Why why was he interviewed in, in that podcast? Well, Ben Menashe has, says he knew him via Ghislaine's late father, the British media baron Robert Maxwell, who Ben Menashe has long claimed uh, ran the same Israeli intelligence circles that he did. Ben Menashe, a controversial character whose views can run towards conspiracy theories, claims that just like Robert Maxwell, Jeffrey was part of an influence campaign. The Israelis had this thing about President Clinton. When he got elected as president, the Israelis were genuinely worried that he'd forced them into a deal with the Palestinians. Uh, just like President Carter forced them into a deal with the Egyptians. They tried to pressure Mr. Clinton in different ways. Are you suggesting that Jeffrey Epstein was involved in a, a sort of influence operation on President Clinton? Yes, very much so. As far as I'm aware, the evidence for any of that is circumstantial at best. But it, yeah, it's consistent with what Ben Menashe has been saying for decades now? Certainly years, anyway. Uh, If anything, the new information here is that there's such a thing as Discovery Plus. Okay. Uh, Jonathan, are we done? 
Yeah, I mean, I could probably look up more right now, but let, I think, yeah, that, that's it for now. I think we're going to have to check in on Ari Benmanachi again. Oh, yeah, I think this will be an annual thing. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. In June, we brought you a story about the new waves of unionization happening at Starbucks. That story featured interviews from baristas at the first ever unionized Starbucks in Victoria, B.C. Except that it wasn't actually the first ever unionized Starbucks. Hi, Cherise. Hi, Jesse. So, I made a mistake, as much as I hate to admit it. See, I started getting emails from former workers telling me that in the 1990s, there were actually a handful of stores that unionized, which ended up decertifying later on. And one even said that Starbucks employed a key anti-union tactic to encourage decertification by raising wages and benefits for non-union employees. Huh. I mean, we don't like to get stuff wrong, but that's super interesting. I mean, I guess you were right that it's the first unionized Starbucks of this millennium. But when people hear that these retail outlets are unionizing, I think there's a question of like, is that sustainable? Is that a workplace that can be unionized? And at least, I guess, in the case of these 90s efforts, they didn't last. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. And most of these unions sort of died off and everyone kind of forgot about them. I mean, everyone but these former baristas. Unfortunately, none of these folks actually wanted to go on the record about it. But I did reach Peggy Nash. She's a former MP and union organizer who helped these unions negotiate their first contract. So there's an article in the student newspaper, the UBC, from 1996, which reported that the idea to unionize first started at a location on Hornby Street in Vancouver. And from there, it spread to five other stores in the area. The workers signed union cards with the Canadian Auto Workers Union, which is now known as Unifor. Back then, Peggy Nash was a senior negotiator with the CAW, and she told me that the workers had two major issues. Scheduling was a huge issue whereby the Starbucks system could schedule you with all kinds of crazy hours and give you small pieces of the schedule so that you might work a, a couple of hours here and a few hours there to deal with their peak periods. I vividly remember that some members of the bargaining committee were difficult to reach because they were couch surfing they couldn't afford their own place to live. They ended up staying temporarily with friends uh, in different locations. They just weren't making enough money to get by. And um, their ages varied. I mean, they weren't all student age workers. Some of them were older and they were very frustrated about their wages, but also the inflexibility of Starbucks around how their schedules were organized, uh, the lack of benefits, and really the lack of a voice with the company. By the first round of contract negotiations in 1997, the number of unionized stores had grown to nine. But when the workers and Starbucks management came to the table, it ended up in a strike. And in solidarity with the baristas, there were the bakers. Who were the bakers? So Starbucks employed bakers at the Burnaby Pastry Distribution Center, which supplied food to the Vancouver stores. And they went on strike too. And this actually had a real impact on customers. As it turns out, when they couldn't get their morning croissant, they went elsewhere. Well, you need your morning croissant, I guess. You really do. And as Nash tells me, the strike was short-lived. And on July 16th, 1997, 
workers ratified their first collective agreement. So with this, they gained better scheduling, a 75-cent hourly wage increase, maternity leave, and some severance. And then came what Nash has identified as a deliberate anti-union move by Starbucks. But what the employer did was come out almost immediately and give every Starbucks worker in the country the same wage increase and then said that there's no point in having a union because you're just going to be paying union dues. Meanwhile, these other gains were not given to the rest of the workers, but we didn't have any way of communicating with everyone to say, no, wait, first of all, your your union dues are tax deductible. But secondly, you can have a voice, you have a grievance procedure, you have these benefits, and you have better scheduling. So basically, the employer tried to buy people off. Sharice, isn't that a good thing? Like giving everybody a raise? That's the goal, right? Yeah, and I think that's where this gets a bit complicated. See, there's a sort of interplay between unions and the large corporations that do this, where a union will fight for better standards, and in response, the corporation raises those standards across the board, making it seem like there's no need for unions anymore. But then there's no one to fight when problems rise again. Is that what happened? Yeah, this was basically the beginning of the end for the Vancouver Starbucks unions. While the CAW managed to negotiate two other contracts after that first round. There was also anti-union pressure by Starbucks management, high turnover rates, and many of the core organizers moving on from the job. So participations in the unions dwindled. And by 2007, all of the Vancouver unions had decertified or become inactive. And then Nash also admits that the union leadership didn't push as hard as they could have. Well, you know, in the 90s, we were dealing with the fallout from NAFTA. And what that meant was many industrial jobs were being lost. And I just think at that particular time, the union was dealing with so many other challenges. It was not prepared to put the resources in that it would have taken So as we first mentioned in my original Starbucks story, there is a new wave of unionization happening at Starbucks stores across Canada, starting with a store on Douglas Street in Victoria. And just last week, a group of 65 workers in Sherwood Park, Alberta, have applied for certification. Now, Starbucks has denied using anti-union tactics. But in June, Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz did a live interview with Andrew Ross Sorkin of the New York Times. In response to the recent wave of unionization, he said that unions are disruptive to the Starbucks experience. The customer experience will be significantly challenged and less than if a third party is integrated into our business. So after the Douglas Street workers negotiated their first collective agreement with a wage increase, Starbucks announced a raise for all employees across the country starting this summer, except at the Douglas location. Shortly after, the union representing the Douglas Street workers filed an unfair labor practice complaint for this move. But Nash said that she believes that, again, this is Starbucks employing the same tactics as before. I would describe Starbucks as an anti-union company. 
Sharice, I guess that like what makes me interested in this story and the wider relevance here is like, where is unionized labor going? Where is unionization going? It's no longer centered on like auto workers. So it seems like, sure, I'm all for extending collective bargaining power to people doing these retail jobs, but you can't blame it all on management. Those are jobs in which you've got a lot of younger workers and people don't necessarily make careers there. There's a lot more turnover, a lot less continuity. And so I'm not terribly surprised that the first attempt to unionize Starbucks fizzled out. And when you tell me that one of the reasons why is because they raise standards for everybody everywhere, it's kind of hard to say like, oh, those dastardly corporate overlords. That's a good thing, even if they were doing it for not the greatest reasons. Something I will say is that what Peggy Nash was telling me about was that when Starbucks gave that first raise after the first union's contract, they didn't raise standards across the board. That first contract There was maternity leave, there was severance, and the majority of workers didn't actually get that, they just got the raise. So there are some gains that unions are fighting for that haven't really been fully applied across the board, things that it really takes a union to get from a corporation. I do think that, yes, these are somewhat transient jobs. I mean, people don't usually stay at Starbucks forever, but... We're also seeing, you know, more and more people in the workforce take up these gig jobs and stay in them for a very long time. More and more older people working at Starbucks. I mean, the job market is not great right now. So who knows how long people might stay in these jobs that are supposed to be transient. I don't know if that's a good argument anymore. And I think with the growth of gig work, I think we're actually going to be seeing more of this push to raise the standard and unionize those types of jobs. It almost feels like there is indisputably a need for collective bargaining and protections and people just like getting together with these jobs. But the apparatus of these unions feels a little bit outdated and clunky and like it's work for workers to maintain a union that goes on top of everything else they have to do. I'm going to get shit for this, but I almost feel like when we're talking about where it's going to go with unionization of gig workers and app workers, there ought to be an app for that. Maybe there will be an app for that. That's actually a very good point, because um, in some of these journal articles that I found about this first movement, that was a big point where workers at Starbucks didn't really want to take up those roles of being a shop steward or being the union VP. It was just, um, you know, too much work for a job that they might not be in for very long. So that's part of the reason why the decertification ended up happening. So maybe there should be an app for that. What would the app be called? Sharice, while I was trying to think of a funny answer to your question, uh, I just Googled, and yeah, there is one. Vice had this last summer. A new app is taking labor unions out of union organizing. That app is called Unit. That's Canada Land. Email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything you send. We're on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is canadaland.com. This episode was reported by Sharice Sucherin, Jonathan Goldsby, and Sarah Larniuk. Our audio editor and technical producer is Tristan Capicione. I'm your host, Jesse Brown. Our theme music is by so-called syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Thank you for supporting Canada Land.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.